So we've been making comments for five years now. That's over 100 episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canadaland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. This episode is brought to you by the Canadian mattress company Endy. Endy is a Canadian sleep brand that wants to offer you the best possible sleep at the fairest possible price. They'll ship the mattress to you in a box and you get a 100-night free trial to see if you like it. To try it out, visit endy.ca, that's E-N-D-Y, and use the promo code COMMONS to get $50 off your first mattress. This episode of Commons is brought to you by Paytm. The Paytm Canada app lets you manage, track, and pay all of your bills. And you can get up to 15% cash back on gift cards from places like Amazon. Download the Paytm app or visit paytm.ca to sign up. Enter the promo code COMMONS and you'll get 10 bucks in Paytm cash that you can spend on any bill you pay. That is free money, friends. On this episode of Commons... I tried to count up the amount of people that I knew who had died from overdose, and I got to 50, and I just had to stop. You get used to it. It's like it becomes normal. There's a well-known narrative about the opioid epidemic in small town anywhere in Canada, that pharmaceutical companies and doctors push prescription drugs onto people that don't need them, they get hooked, and the rest is history. Well, we want to go through all of that noise and actually get to a conversation that is rarely had, and that is the policy story. The opioid crisis began in, and still disproportionately affects, British Columbia. But it's steadily creeping into communities throughout and across Canada. All levels of government have allowed this crisis to get out of hand. In 2016, Canada's health minister, Jane Philpott, said the death toll from opioids is worse than any other infectious epidemic in Canadian history including the peak of the AIDS crisis. Then last month, the British Columbia Coroner Service announced that the number of people who died from overdose deaths in 2017 had gone up nearly 15% from the year before. That calculates to about four people dying every single day. We're going to talk about what caused the opioid crisis, what's being done about it, and how specific drug policies in Canada may be fueling a record high of overdose deaths. I spoke with Garth Mullins, who's a harm reduction activist and a longtime opiate user. And I spoke with Caitlin Shane, a drug policy campaigner and lawyer. Both Caitlin and Garth are based in Vancouver's downtown east side, a neighborhood we are turning to to have this conversation about local drug policy in hopes that communities across Canada might benefit from it. We're very aware that people helicopter in and out of the downtown east side all the time to get their story and leave. But the reason we came here to talk to these two was because 
we have so much to learn from them. The leadership and the expertise on what to do with Canada's opioid crisis is in the downtown east side of Vancouver, and we take you there today. I'm Hadia Rodrigue. I'm Ryan McMahon. From Canada Land, this is Commons. Garth, how old were you the first time you used an opioid? My my stuff started, you know, it's always hard to talk about this to a big audience because it's still very stigmatizing and you're kind of admitting to this uh, highly shamed kind of criminalized activity. But I started as a teenager using uh, heroin and so I used all the way through the last overdose crisis in the 1990s. And uh, that had a HIV AIDS crisis at the same time. In fact, the downtown east side where we are today was ground zero for that. And we had the highest rate of HIV transmission in the industrialized world. And that's because of the syringe policy, which was very stingy. You had to kind of prove you were a drug user, you know, roll up your sleeve, show us some track marks and produce one dirty needle to exchange for one clean needle. And even that was uh, fought for. So today we're still looking and we're still demanding for, say, prescription heroin, for example, or in many jurisdictions, safe injection sites or more of them, overdose prevention sites, uh, these kind of harm reduction things. And government has been particularly slow to come on with this stuff. Often activists have to do it ahead. But it's very parallel that the deaths here today and in the 90s were a public policy issue. And we're just calling for action. And are you still using these days? You know, I, I'm on the methadone program right now myself. Many of us are who are organizing this uh, on what they call opiate substitution treatments. And I have been for uh, quite a few years. How did you kind of start using? How did I start? Yeah. Well, like a lot of people, you you have sort of uh, some, you know, bad experiences when you're quite young. Uh, and you you become very disconnected from other people, uh, from the world. And then you happen into a substance that pushes all that back. For people who are, you know, daily uh, opiate users, uh, like I was, it's not a party. You know, it's not uh, a good time. You know, you've reached a sort of a, a very precarious ceasefire with your demons, and of course, you've substituted something that's incredibly harmful for you as well, you know, having to risk overdose and, and every kind of untold other thing in, um, in an illegal market where the whole economy is illegal and the things you have to do to get the drugs are often illegal. Right. For me, it started adolescence and, you know, half of everybody I know uh, who's been in there has been uh, maybe injured on the job or had some kind of physical injury. People get prescribed pain meds, then they get cut off. And so they have to pick it up somewhere because your habit doesn't just necessarily disappear. And the other half, it's it's kind of like um, childhood trauma uh, or, or some kind of like real fundamental alienation and disconnection that just leaves people, you know, uh, open to that sort of thing. So when did you shift from sort of being a user to being a user and activist? When did you become an activist for harm reduction? There's so much uh, sort of stigma around this. I kind of shied away from it for for years. I guess it was uh, about five years ago or something. It seemed to me like in the neighborhood, 
I was again seeing the beginnings of another what felt like emergency. We were losing one person every day, and now we're losing like almost four people every day. So this this dwarfs the 90s uh, strong heroin overdose crisis. And I also started trying to figure out in myself, like, why was I in this situation? How did I get here? Was there a specific experience, um, maybe an overdose or the death of someone close to you that really changed something for you or that really stands out to you? I mean, this is, is really, it's really a, a crazy thing to think about. I tried to count up the amount of people that I knew who had died from overdose, and I got to 50, and I just had to stop because it was just, it was doing me in. Certainly over my life, I've resuscitated five people, or well, four people, depends how you count, but um, so, you know, half of the people I came up with are gone now, and uh, just the prospect of it starting again was spurring me into activism, but there wasn't this crystallizing event. And this is the sad, terrible thing is you get used to it. It's like it becomes normal. And I know it's hard to understand, but it's not like between emergencies, the dying stops. It's not like the chaos stops when the headlines are, are gone. We sound like broken records to each other and our friends in the community saying, you know, don't, don't use a loan. Try a little bit first. You can always do more, but you can never do less. Try to know the person who you're getting it off of. You know, get training with naloxone and learn to identify the risks and the signs of overdose. But even then, we've actually lost leaders in our movement to overdose in the last couple of years. Right. It really gives us the feeling that sometimes that nobody is safe and that, you know, maybe we don't get out of this. Last year, we lost Tracy Morrison, who is a fantastic fighter against poverty and against the drug war. And she would always hug people and say goodbye and say, stay safe, you know. So it was, uh, it really, it really threw us back, you know. Right. How does the stigma impact you on a day-to-day -day basis? I guess for me, it's made me quiet about this a lot. You know, you don't want to talk about your own personal side of it. I think stigma keeps people isolated and alone. So this is where most people die, is by themselves in a house, not with other people. This is how the coroner finds most people. Obviously, the, most, the worst part of stigma is the criminalization. So uh, spending time in jail and not being able to travel and all the health risks that come from going in and out of incarceration. Like you, if you're on methadone, your treatment can be disrupted. If you leave jail, you can uh, have a different tolerance than you went in with. So a lot of people wind up overdosing. Uh, when they get released from jail. And of course, it does nothing to actually disrupt what the police are saying they, they want to do. You know, if you arrest someone who's just a drug user, you just throw them into a health chaos. If you arrest someone who's a sort of a low-level drug dealer, those people often have habits by themselves uh, of their own. And then you're disrupting the relationship between the user and the dealer. You take someone that someone knows on the block where they can know they can get safe stuff from. Well, you take them out now people are having to go to strangers. Now when, when me and, and our, my friends and like Tracy, who's gone, used to tell people, try to know the person you're scoring off, well, now they can't do that thanks to the police. Right. So it's not particularly helpful. In the downtown east side here, there have been drug testing facilities available recently. And there's been a little bit of a study, should, should come out soon, to try and figure out who's using them and why. And it's often 
low-level drug dealers, street-level dealers are trying to test the stuff that they're dealing to make sure it's safe because they don't want to kill their clients and their neighbors. You mentioned earlier that many people become addicted to opioids after being first introduced to it in the form of prescription medication. Is there no transition by the medical community or any kind of gradual weaning of people off of the drug? Is it that you get hooked and then your prescription runs out and that's it? No, I mean, we, we don't have a a lovely science-based approach to this sort of thing. We have a capitalism-based approach where Purdue Pharmaceutical sends its marketing people out across the world to sell the latest pain meds and say, oh, it'll be better this time. Uh, it, won't, it won't have addictive properties or whatever. And then the doctors are all prescribing this. And then there's uh, sort of the reverse where there's a panic and the doctors are like, oh, are we causing this problem? And there are um, various you know, college of physicians and surgeons or whatever start to pull back and crack down and monitor and police prescribing, which don't overprescribe for sure. But once people are being prescribed this, if you cut them off, uh, you're causing a great increase in risk for them. The idea of outlawing it and making it such a, a scary thing is relatively new. You know, it's 110 years old, um, the prohibition of opiates. And um, that started here in Vancouver as well. What is your awareness of the history of, of how that started? I mean, Canada really uh, fired the first shot in the drug war. We uh, uh, wrote the Opium Act here in Canada in 1908. The first arrest for hard drugs was on the downtown east side shortly thereafter. And uh, they've been doing it ever since. And this law came from um, a real sort of racist uh, politics that was dominating at the time. Uh, our city hall used to be right in the downtown east side, right at the epicenter of Canada's overdose crisis now. Uh, but but back then, it was just, you know, the middle of the city. And uh, they had uh, this Asian Exclusion League having a rally in front of city hall, you know, with, with the okay of city hall and with some uh, very notable high-ranking type people in Vancouver speaking at it, you know, on this great fear of immigration. So they had this rally there, uh, really whipped up all the white residents who were... Uh, you know, in attendance, and, and those people went on a riot, you know, a kind of a pogrom into Chinatown and Japantown for a couple days. But after that, there was a, you know, a little kind of a commission of inquiry, like what happened here, as Canada is wont to do. And, and part of that was, let's accept claims for compensation from business people who were, um, you know, sustained losses from, from the, the riots. And a couple people said, yeah, we're manufacturing opium here where we have a little uh, factory and uh, we want compensation too. That was legal in Canada. It was a it was regular practice, nothing wrong with it. But uh, Mackenzie King, who was then the Minister of Labor, said, whoa, I don't like this. Let me think about this some more. And he, I guess, took a little tour around. He wrote a report to Ottawa that said, I'm very worried about the the idea of, of quote, white women and girls, unquote, being uh, influenced by these people through opium use by these uh, alien people. That report recommended ban the stuff, outlaw it, and Canada did that very quickly. So we were actually ahead of the U.S., who also had their own drug war founded in racism. Um, but uh, we, that's how it started. It seems like so many things are driven by the fear of the other. So many policies. Yeah, I, I mean, I absolutely think so. And you still today see how marginalization and race and class are all tied up into Canada's drug war. Like, for example, the indigenous population is way overrepresented among the overdose statistics that come out from the coroners. What do you think people need to know in order to begin to understand this crisis? 
daily drug use and addiction. This is a, a problem of industrial capitalist societies, right? Like you just didn't have societies that were like this before, even when the drugs were available. So there's something about the alienation and dislocation of, you know, industrial capitalism that is related to and driving uh, some some drug use. And I think we, we even have a, a, a guy here, uh, Bruce K. Alexander, who wrote the book, The Globalization of Addiction, and did quite a famous experiment, kind of started to show how this works. Um, you know, I'll just tell you about it for a quick sec. <laughs> Edit it if you like. It's called Rat Park. In the 70s, there were some psychology students at Simon Fraser University who were thinking about the model of determining how do drugs work in our brain. And the classic example was you have a rat in a cage with a bottle of water and a bottle of, you know, like liquid morphine or cocaine, and the rat will use the drugs until they're dead. And they always said, look, this is how bad these drugs are. This is what happens. Game over. That's it. Here's the story. And this guy, Bruce, he, he thought, maybe it's the cage, not the drugs. So he built this thing called a rat park, you know, where the rats got a, a lovely big place with lots of things to play. They could socialize with each other. There was food. They could form relationships. Uh, lots of things to do, and all of a sudden, there's a great decrease in the amount of of rats using the, you know, the drug-filled uh, water, and everyone's doing a lot better. So if you if you think that the rat in the cage was good enough to explain the drug user back in the day, I kind of think Rat Park and the cage could explain our society a little bit too. Maybe it's the cage nature of our society that's actually one of the drivers. And so if we're to figure out solutions, they've got to be social. They've got to be larger scale. But most solutions focus on the individual drug user, and that misses the biggest variable. Right. I feel like so much of the resistance from the government and maybe from um, the medical community as well is based on what the public thinks about opiate users and about opiate use. And so what kind of education can we do to get people to see this as a solution? Yeah, I mean, I sort of think the education front, there's two challenges. There's the first challenge is educating the politicians and the decision makers. That this is a public health situation. That you don't wait for public opinion to catch up on public health matters. Like you wouldn't stop vaccinating people for polio or whatever because of some anti-vaxxer memes, right? Like you don't rely on public opinion to do public health policy. It's not how it works. It should be evidence-based. For everybody else in the general public, part of it is showing people true representations of drug use and drug users. So the media has done some good jobs, but there have also been lots and lots of uh, very sort of... Um, stigma sort of coverage you know like you see an article with a pile of dirty needles as the picture every time and it's just like why are we showing that the article isn't about discarded needles there's actually programs that pick them up there's a whole story there and it's just this idea of uh, drug users as like zombies outside of society in the streets you know a picture that might make sense is like a leafy suburb street with somebody mowing the lawn drug users are everywhere they are me and you everybody knows somebody there's often the idea of the drug user and the images of someone shooting up, right? But a lot of the drug user activists that I know are the smartest people on drug policy, representing drug users, even very entrenched drug users, as experts in their own lives, not like using them to sort of hit a note of pathos in the middle of the article, but going to them in, same, in the same way you would as a, an academic or a researcher or something. 
putting those two folks on the same kind of footing, I think would be a good start because it's always the case that the people who are affected by policy should really be put front and center in writing that policy and speaking on that policy. Right. So we see that our drug policies at all levels of government seem to be embedded with the stigma that we've talked about. Can you talk about how you've seen these policies implemented in your community? The policy is, it doesn't have the feel of an emergency response. You know, if there's a a big fire, people are like, let's get the sirens going, get there and spray the water on it. This is more like, hmm, maybe we should study the fire and see, let's dump a few things on it, see what happens. You know, it's like the the science is in, the evidence is in, we know what to do, we got to get done. So if you look at the amount of money and time and effort and law given to policing, it greatly outweighs the kinds of things that you get, which are safe injection sites, for example. There isn't Health Canada saying, okay, every time, everywhere we have like more than 250,000 people will have a safe injection site or something. There's no approach like that. They're all pilot projects. They're all people in local communities kind of proposing them and trying to work their way through the approval process. Where we see other things like um, little efforts that, that seem very progressive that get a lot of news coverage, like uh, Dr. Mark Tyndall in the city has proposed we could use a vending machine where people had like something the equivalent of a bank card and they could withdraw sort of a, a, a Dilaudid pill, which would be another form of uh, opiate substitution therapy like methadone. It, it's the same principle as a nicotine patch, you know, to stop from smoking. But that's, again, a, a pilot project uh, by someone who's sort of fighting for it. It's not the leadership of government in response. But this is kind of always how it is with drugs. Most of the solutions come from us uh, where we even open them, like the first safe injection sites have been illegal. Eventually, the government says, okay, you can have them. And then you kind of got to fight in court sometimes to maintain the things that you've, you've brought into existence like that. Why do you think the government is so resistant? Why are they not treating this like a real fire? Governments balance their priorities based on pressure from the most organized. And we are not the most organized. You know, the pharmaceutical industry, pharmacies generally, doctors, lots of other interests are more organized than we are. You know, police are. Uh, so there's people that are much better well-resourced. So the, the group I work with, the BC Association of People on Methadone, you know, represents methadone uh, users across BC, some 17,000 people, and we have a budget of like $3,000. So, <laughs> you know, it's it's like we're just completely outmatched. It is hard to organize when everyone's life is in crisis too. Like right. things happen in our community that really just totally demolish the agenda. You know, we have people in our mids die, people on our boards die. Uh, maybe there'll be some policy that's changed, which just sounds abstract, but all of a sudden it ripples through everybody and everyone's um, methadone or suboxone or whatever is somehow changed or something happens that just uh, destabilizes everything. And so we'll be in triage and kind of recovery mode half the time or more, you know? Uh, So it's, it's, it's a hard fight, but more and more you're seeing some of those folks, um, some of the people who've been really, you know, the coroners and the public health officers and stuff who've just presided over this, you know, who've seen their morgues fill up, who've seen um, most people who are getting donated organs now are getting them from uh, drug users who've died of an overdose. And those people are starting to say, look, we need to think more about decriminalization. Is the end goal drug decriminalization and legalization? So, I mean, I, I believe in the 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 revolution that the end of prohibition would be the total life-changing uh transformation of that possibility for sure that would be great 
on the way to that, I also believe in some smaller reforms, which are easier to do, you know, make methadone more accessible, make prescription heroin, uh, which is, you know, clean pharmaceutical grade heroin prescribed and injected in a clinic for people, make that more available. You know, there's people for whom methadone and suboxone and other things don't work. Make slow-release oral morphine more available. And uh, the Dilaudid that the Dr. Tyndall is suggesting might come from a vending machine. Like, all of these options can be rolled out and should be rolled out immediately and, and massively. We had a meeting here uh, in 2016, some uh, activists and some first responders with Trudeau. And he said, you know, don't, don't hold your breath on decriminalization of hard drugs. Decriminalizing marijuana is hard enough. And so, you know, we have heard that signal. And so we're not, you know, expecting we'll have this day of action, this demonstration, and then uh, the government will hear and the laws will change and our lives will change. You know, been around long enough to know it doesn't usually happen like that. So plan A, change the world massively. Plan B, change it incrementally on the way. What parallels do you see between the AIDS crisis and the opioids crisis? What kind of parallels do you see and what kind of lessons do you think we can learn from those responses? Oh, I I think we have lots to learn from ACT UP. You know, here's a community that lost like a whole whole cohort, like a whole layer of leadership and just went through that that terrible never-ending trauma. And it's, which it's, it's like hard to even explain what that's like until you're in the middle of it. And they built an organization and a movement and changed the world out of that. This generation of activists is having to face a, you know, its own kind of its own kind of depopulation from overdoses. We have to understand and learn how that they they made it through. Lastly, Garth, could you describe what it feels like to be on opioids? Imagine yourself on your worst most self-hating, most anxious, most demon-haunted kind of day where you're just being stalked by everything you aren't, everything that you hate about yourself, every bad thing that's happened to you. And it's just been like that forever. That's all you can remember is that I don't belong here. Uh, you know, the, the things that have happened to you have actually nudged you outside of the mainstream. And you just feel that alienation disconnection all the time. And then all of a sudden, you didn't even know this existed. There's a switch. You can turn that off. You can turn off the screaming, howling noise that is the background of your life with a, a you know, a couple of a couple of minutes work. You know, that's what it's like. And the reverse, this is what I would really say is what dope sickness is like. Um, because if you are a daily drug user, daily opiate user, you will get really sick really fast if you stop using. And it's like it's like very hard to describe for someone who's never felt it. I mean, physically, some of the symptoms are like the worst flu you've ever had multiplied by 100. And you're just like, oh, my God, I'm going to die. This is terrible. And I don't mean that, um, you know, in any hyperbole. You're just like, Ugh, this must be the end. But also all of that terrible howling noise of all the alienation, everything that's fucked up about you comes crashing back in, the thing that you've used, and now you can't find the switch, or maybe you don't have enough money to pull the switch. So you can see why people go to extreme measures to not wind up in dope sickness. But I I think people got to know that it's not just people who are daily drug users, uh, injection heroin users that are imperiled here. 
it's people at the club, it's people at the bar, it's people taking ecstasy, MDMA, whatever. It's uh, party drugs, weekend warriors. This stuff has made it into all of the drug supply. So anything really that's prohibited by law is vulnerable to this sort of contamination. And so there's people out there training bar staff, training clubs, setting up harm reduction at festivals because it is everywhere. So right now, if you're listening and it's not in your community, in your school, in your workplace or your house or your bloodstream, it's coming. And the question is, will we do something before it arrives? got my ND mattress. Damn. And? Uh, it's still in the box. I'm saving it for the weekend, the official unveiling and unboxing. Oh, how exciting. I think you should become one of those uh, YouTube sensations that does unboxings and uh, narrates annoyingly how the plastic feels inside the box. And you ever end up uh, late at night going down a rabbit hole and watching unboxings? No. Oh, just me. Okay, well. Um, <laughs> Someone has too much time on their hands. <laughs> there's a whole underworld of YouTube that uh, has unboxings. I would offer that I see YouTube, YouTube stardom in your future should you do an unboxing of your Andy mattress because you would have so many amazing things to say about this company. It's a Canadian company that launched in 2015. And if you use the promo code COMMONS, you get $50 off any mattress, and I think that's a pretty good deal. There's also a 100-night free trial and free returns. Andy believes that you should love your mattress, and they believe that if you order it, you will. This episode of Canada Land Commons is brought to you by Paytm Canada. Download the Paytm Canada app for free on either Google Play or the App Store or visit paytm.ca to sign up and create your Paytm account. And when you do, use the promo code COMMONS. You will get $10 in Paytm cash and you can spend that on any bill you need to pay. Look, we all pay bills and they're hard to keep track of. Some of us pay them through our banking apps. Some of us pay them on websites. Some of us are old school and we walk to a bank and pay the bill in person. You can forego all of that with a Paytm Canada app. You can manage, track, and pay all of your bills using a credit card, your bank account, or Paytm cash. It's easy. You set it and forget it. The rest is history. So, Visit paytm.ca, sign up, create your account, and you will get $10 in Paytm cash. You can pay any bill with that 10 bucks. Use the promo code COMMONS at checkout.
Next, Ryan speaks with lawyer Caitlin Shane about some of the policies behind the opioid crisis. So my name is Caitlin Shane, and I'm a community engagement lawyer at Pivot Legal Society. Pivot is a nonprofit legal organization that is based out of the downtown east side of Vancouver. We do a lot of strategic litigation, hearing from folks in the downtown east side and beyond about the different ways that harmful laws and policies are affecting people. Caitlin, I want to start with a number, the number 1,422. Can you describe what that number means to you? So that would be the number of individuals who died due to fatal overdose in BC uh, last year. And it's an incredibly staggering number. We've been seeing these numbers rising, and we've identified a a really profound problem with our drug laws and policies. And until we really address those things, those numbers will continue to rise. So unfortunately, uh, it's not super surprising to me, but it is incredibly tragic, obviously. And is that is that the highest number of deaths in the province uh, sort of in recorded history? Yes. Okay. Yes, it far outweighs any other crisis uh, that we've seen. And that's the other sort of tragic piece about this is that the numbers are so high. And we know that we're at any other group of individuals or any other issue, really, we would see governmental action a lot more quickly. A recent United Nations report stated that there was no other country in the world that consumes more prescription opioids on a per capita basis than Canada. But, you know, we don't have exact national numbers and there's no real tally or standardized coordinated system to monitor or gather the information between provinces. Why is that data so hard to come by? Well, it's interesting. So in BC, after a provincial public health emergency was declared, we did have access to that information, specifically in BC, though. And that information really helped helped us to strategize ways to deal with the crisis and and made it unquestionable that we needed more harm reduction to exist in the downtown east side and and throughout BC. We needed overdose prevention sites. We needed to scale up naloxone. Uh, We needed to expand access to heroin-assisted treatments and and those types of things because we were seeing in the coroner's reports what a lot of us already knew, but what governments weren't paying attention to, which is that people are dying as a result of fatal overdoses many of which fentanyl played a role in. Certainly it would be useful to have that data across the country. I mean, if we're really going to be taking this seriously as the crisis that it is, the least we could do is begin to have reliable data to tell us how people are dying and where they're dying um, and, and what sorts of interventions might have prevented those deaths. Even Donald Trump declared the opioid crisis a, a national public health emergency in the U.S. And at this point, Canada's never really made the same declaration. Let's say the Canadian government does declare a national emergency and actually acknowledges this in an open and forthright way. What then happens to the allocations of resources and and what types of resources in a best case scenario would be provided to, to fight this on the ground? Well, our, our sense is that by declaring a national health emergency, it is it is forcing governments on every level to really start taking this seriously and to start investing in, in ways to deal with this crisis. And so what we've seen in BC, although the provincial government has done a lot of work to expand harm reduction, naloxone, overdose prevention sites, that kind of thing, it would hopefully encourage them to invest in things like heroin-assisted treatment um, and opioid substitution therapy so that people can have access to clean and safe opioids. 
Um, and, and I mean, I, I'm talking from a BC context, and in BC, I, I recognize that we have it, uh, I don't want to say we have it better than a lot of other provinces, because obviously the numbers indicate otherwise, but as far as, uh, as, far as governments um, at least pretending to listen, yeah. it's, uh, it's happening a little bit more here than it is elsewhere. I was speaking with my friend uh, who's based in Quebec last week, and he was just saying, just getting naloxone was an incredible effort. They had about six people who had to hit up different pharmacies across the province to just get a single kit. And then they get a, a, a kit, but it's in a Ziploc bag, and they don't have gloves, and they don't have syringes. And so it's like these sort of obstructionist efforts from provinces to get in the way of people just saving lives. And that is such... I don't mean to go on here, but I mean, as someone who worked as a harm reduction worker, when you have people actually getting in the way of you trying to save lives, it makes it so hard to even have the conversation of like, okay, let's talk about the bigger picture here. Let's talk about drug laws and policies. It's like, how do we even get to that conversation if we're just still struggling to, to, to have a vial of naloxone to save someone's life? Can you describe for us what policies are not working in terms of saving lives? One of the things that we hear constantly across the province and across the country is that people are afraid to call 911 because they know that police are going to show up. We've heard a lot that police are actually arresting people who overdose, arresting people who call 911. And as soon as you have that happen, the person is not going to call 911. I've experienced this in my own work as a harm reduction worker. Yeah. And isn't that one of sort of the fallouts of this uh, Good Samaritan Overdose Act? You know, people are calling the police and then people are being arrested at their own overdoses and, and things like that. Yeah, this was this is something we've been doing a lot of advocacy around. So the Good Samaritan Drug Overdose Act was enacted uh, under the auspices of, of providing legal protection for people who call 911, uh, for people who overdose, for people who are at the scene of an overdose. Uh, and so, you know, that's a that's a great message. Call 911 when there's an overdose. But the fact is that the legislation protects only against simple possession. So it doesn't protect against possession for the purposes of trafficking, which is a largely discretionary offense. It doesn't protect against any other criminal offense. It doesn't protect um, people who are on breach of conditions that are unrelated to simple possession. It doesn't protect people who have outstanding warrants, which is a lot of people. And so the fear is still there. Like I talk to people constantly who will not call 911 when there's an overdose because they know that police will arrive. How do we get that conversation going so that everyone's on the same page and we, we better understand uh, how to move forward? So I think that the act itself could be amended to provide greater protections for people, so people who have outstanding warrants and people who are on breach of conditions where the underlying offense was not simple possession, providing more protection so that people feel comfortable and confident calling 911 when they need it yeah. is good. And then, of course, um, there's sort of the, the, the bigger piece of possibly decriminalization. There needs to be more communication on different levels of government, and there also just really needs to be more leadership. We're not seeing a whole lot of leadership from the federal government. They've, they've made some good efforts, but ultimately the criminal law is within the purview of the federal government. And so only the federal government has the power to change those laws and to lead by example. 
Yeah. So in your mind, the only way forward is through first decriminalization, then legalization. Is that is that fair? Yeah. And, and I should say legalization plus regulation, because with legalization, that means that no penalty at all is attaching. But with regulation in the same way that we've regulated alcohol and tobacco um, and all sorts of other things, that's that's the way that we obtain some control over the situation. And it's funny because I think when I start talking about legalization, people tend to think that it's this incredibly extreme and radical idea. And my counter response to that is actually blanket prohibition when we know that people are going to continue to use drugs. That's radical and that's extreme. Regulation is far more moderate and reasonable than this sort of false sense that we can just make it illegal and it's going to stop. And we're seeing like the the fallout of that right now. Right. I think that one way that we can sort of begin to see things change is that oftentimes it starts on a local level. Um, we'll see community taking the initiative and doing something and then the government realizes that that's happening despite whatever law they have in place. And so they quickly move to change that law so that whatever the community was doing is now legally okay. And so my hope is that we'll see more local police departments adopting policies of non-enforcement when it comes to possession or of adopting sort of like this idea of bubble zones around overdose prevention sites and supervised injection sites where people can freely move about around the space uh, without fear of, of getting charged. And when we see more local bodies making these efforts, perhaps then higher levels of government will um, move to change the laws that they're seeing are not working. Yeah. Caitlin, where can people find the work that Pivot Legal has been doing on this issue? We have a website, www.pivotlegal.org, and it has various resources for communities. So we have things like printable rights cards that tell people, uh, for instance, when the Good Samaritan Drug Overdose Act does and does not apply, um, how to talk to police, and we have a map that shows where all those supervised consumption sites and overdose prevention sites are. So I would encourage local communities to um, engage with those resources and um, we're always happy to send resources as well to folks. And it's our hope is that like by doing this very uh, sort of small effort to help people become aware of their rights, um, they can start asserting them more and that will lead to broader change. Thanks, Caitlin. Thanks so much for having me. It was an honor. That is our Commons episode for this week. I am Ryan McMahon. And I'm Hadia Rodrigue. We want to hear from you. You can tweet us at Canadaland Commons. That's C-M-N-S. This episode is produced by Abby Madon. Our music is produced by Nathan Burley. If you want to get at us, you know where to find us. And if you like what we do, please support us on Patreon.
This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.